Welcome to the New Hood Peace Partners, where we discuss community-based violence prevention with folks working for peace in black and brown communities. I'm your host, Dr. Talib Hudson, and I'm the founder of The New Hood, a community-based think tank. I hope you find these conversations to be informative, inspirational, and interesting. Now, let's get into it. Welcome, 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 welcome to another episode of the New Hood Peace Partners. I am your host, Dr. Talib Hudson, and I am really, really excited to be here with Arisa Napper Williams, who is the founder and chief visionary of Not Another Child Inc. Amazing. So welcome to the show, Arisa. How are you? Uh, how are you doing today? How are you feeling? I am feeling awesome on this sunny afternoon. I'm feeling awesome, Talib. Thank you for this opportunity to be here to share with the new hood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're excited. We're, those of y'all who don't know, me, we, me and Arisa go uh, go back a little bit. So we just <laughs> we like to have fun Way and back. cut up a little bit. Yes, yes. Um. <laughs> So the first time that I remember meeting you was at a a call in a forum that uh, that the NYPD was doing, and you were one of the speakers at that forum. And and since then, I've I've run into you in a number of different occasions doing uh, doing the work that that you do to the to the point that we are where we are now with with our relationship. And fun fact, found out that one of your family members is a former classmate of mine. But so I'm you know personally familiar with some of the work that you do with Not Another Child. But I'm I'm pretty sure I don't even know all the work that you do with Not Another Child. So not only for the audience, but also myself, can you tell us a little bit more about what is Not Another Child um, and, and what is the work that you do in this field? So I, like you said, I am the founder and CEO of Not Another Child, um, an organization that we started back in August 2006 after my son was innocently murdered in Brooklyn, New York. Um, We started the actual organization as an anti-gun violence forum or organization um, to just speak out against gun violence. You know, I I always tell people my first thing and what I thought was my only thing with the organization was creating a platform so that I could scream at some kids. You know, a 15-year-old had pled guilty to my son's murder and, you know, what other way to get your point across or me unknowingly not knowing that it was a part of my healing was to gather some youth with some basketball and some food and some music and just scream at them about their choices and, and their decisions or how they can make their decisions, but they can't make their consequences. And so we started off as just anti-gun violence, rallies, you know, just all types of things. And I think as the years progress, we have forwarded our mission more towards peace and healing. Mm. But still being anti-gun violence, you know, that has not left us at all. But we just support families and communities that are directly impacted by violence. And so I work closely with family members, whether it be mothers, fathers, siblings, you know, those forgotten, the children of, the the partners and or spouses. I work closely with them just to assure that they have the support that they need on their healing journey. And it has been heartbreaking yet healing for me and for them. Wow. So it's interesting because I get, I did not know that when you started off, your initial focus was primarily about anti-gun violence. And yeah. and and so you're saying you originally started doing your work because you wanted to say not another child, That's right? Good. Not another child will 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 be lost. So I do want to ask you, you mentioned you said that your son was innocently murdered. Mm-hmm. Can you 
what 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 does that mean to be innocently murdered? Can you give us more context around that? And you that? know, sometimes I stray away from using that word because I don't want other parents whose children may have been tied up to firstly, nobody should be murdered. Nobody, mm -hmm. whether you're tied right. up into, let's get that straight. But I use the word innocently so that people can see you don't have to be in anything to mm. be a victim of violence. You know, right. he was standing in front of, or rather sitting on a garbage can by a housing authority building. Heard the shots and, and it often baffles me because growing up, I always told them, you hear gunshots, you lay on the ground. He didn't lay on the mm -hmm. ground. He went toward, run towards the front door of the building, not knowing that the person that they were shooting at was in front of the building. Wow. So when I say innocently, I'm, I say that it was not meant for him. Right. In the same right. way that it innocently happened to him, that it can innocently happen to anyone else. Right. Because sometimes people will be like, Oh well, you know what? What was he involved Absolutely. in? Absolutely. Or what was this person doing? He must have done something. No, 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 right? no. To leave mm -hmm. the stigma is real. You know mm. the stigma amongst ourselves, amongst us as a culture and as a people, and the stigma amongst agencies and society. You know, mm. it, it is really real. I'll never forget when, when, and I don't know if I can say the name, so I won't say the name, but I always remember it when the detective called and told me, you know. Um, yeah, I know your son was just murdered. I'm the detective on the case. I'll let you know if he had anything to do with it. I'll let you that know. Was it, when I tell you those words ring like the Liberty Bell in my head. Wow. And that's because of the stigma that comes along with our African-American males being a victim of gun violence. And so when I say innocently, wow. that's what I mean. No, no, that's that's really. I mean, there's so much to unpack there, because it speaks to the criminalization of our people, right? Yeah. And, and especially of young people, and especially of 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 young black males to say, well, if something happened, then well, he must have been involved, or he must have been connected, or there must have he must have been doing something wrong, as opposed to this is like an innocent. Uh, or not, I'm going to take that word out, as you just said, but a human being, right? A human being has just been, has, has just been harmed, right? And let's, let's start there, that there is harm, there is hurt, there is, there is trauma, there is sadness, there is a wound that needs to be healed. But no, we have to go make the assumptions and have the, and have the stigma and, and have that be the starting place that, Wow, that yeah, I, yeah. I, that wasn't I wasn't even trying to go in that <laughs> in direction, but it that, but there's just so much there that you put on the table because then it talks about then in this in our communities, right, in black and brown communities when we're talking about gun violence, you know, I have heard that young people sometimes often feel feel stigmatized to the point where uh, well, even if I'm not involved, people think I'm involved. Mm -hmm. So why I might as well have might the benefit. Well yeah. I might as well be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? It's like I can't even escape it. Yeah. That's wow. That's and, that's and I deep. think, you know, I don't want to go too far off track, but I know I'm just talking to my friend Talia. Let's we have we just having a conversation. We having a conversation. I think that's what pushed me to work even more. Mm, tell me because what that is. Because being a a single parent of two sons and always being the one to have their back always being the one to be their advocate, I started feeling like even in my son's death, I have to stand up for him and make his legacy known because he was 21 with no children. Wow. You know, he was 21 with nothing but a dream. He was 21 and, and just loved to cook, you know, just love to do those things that we love to do. And so you know, the, the the detective actually had to take back his words when he started seeing that I sprouted a basketball tournament like Pee Wee Kirkland and all of these other people coming out on year one. Wow. You know, and how I was speaking out and, and he would just pop up at everything, you know. But as much as I could say the damage was done, the damage was good, you know. Mm. Because it made me, it made me really, really do the work. So you, you took it like Michael Jordan, like uh, like in a documentary. You was like, and I took it personally, right? And you just used that as fuel. So okay, so you got the you got the basketball tournament, um, which you've been doing for a number of years. 
Um, I believe you also do meetings, like healing groups with, with parents who have and family members, people who have had a family member transition, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, you've got BUDS, right? Which is mm-hmm. um, uh, which is an acronym about, uh, about a, a young male mentor. So let, let, let me let you tell it. Tell me what else you y'all 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 do. You know, I would have loved to stay with the fluffy things. You know, basketball mm. tournaments and buying food and say, "Hey, baby, don't get in trouble." You know, and all of that. But it seemed that as the years went by. We just started busting the seams with the basketball tournament. It went from one day to two days to a month, you know, to a full, to uh, summer long. Teams coming from Pennsylvania and Connecticut and everything. And then came the influx of parents, Mm. you know, um, parents that had buried children, parents that did not know what in their child would end up on. And so wanted that support of how they could be involved and not waiting until something happened to be involved. Just all types of things, Um, you know, and even meeting men up and them seeing that, AT seeing that in me, like, no, we need your voice as a part of this. Um, Mm. And then the peer support session started, you know, and that was the foundation of really our uh, family engagement our family engagement work, as much as you can go to therapy, you can seek out all of those clinical Mm -hmm. needs. It's nothing like peer support, nothing like sitting amongst those that are going through the same thing as you and just hearing realistic options to take or hearing realistic suggestions to take and saying, okay, good. That worked for you. That sounds interesting. Let me do that and take away this, or let me do that and add my secret sauce. You Mm. know, just having that platform for family members to come and even hear about how you support other family members. You know, I've had daughters to come and just sit on the outskirts of the mothers talking so that they could hear what mothers are going through because sometimes we aren't um, good at self-expression. So Mm. we'll hear what other mothers are going through and they're like, oh my God, that's what my mother was going through. You know, and then they'll hear from that how also to support them in that place. And so our work with that, with our families have expanded from support sessions to annual retreats where we just take mothers away and give them, you know, some nature, you know, a lot of our, if, if not, well, all of our children were killed in the city, you know, Mm. most of us still live in the city. So you never got a real break from getting away, not hearing the ambulance, not hearing the, the uh, sirens, you know, all of those Mm -hmm. things. And so, we created a platform for parents just to go and and you're just in the woods. You know, we've been going to the Poconos for the last few years and building it and building it and just waking up with our pajamas, having coffee and talking. Mm. And then we have some people to come in and really help us, you know, as a whole, um, just to kind of help us on our journey and our experience. But one thing that NAC does is it takes an intergenerational approach because you cannot help support one end and not the other. You know, mm. so we can't build pa- parents up to this uh, healed and whole individual. And then you still have children that's still fighting with generational curses and layers of trauma that have mm. locked onto them prior to you getting on this healing journey. Mm. And so now, you know, with buds, that's brothers, uncles, dads, and sons. That's an intergenerational approach to mentoring, you know, as much as, as our grandfathers and uncles and dads have, have things that they can share to help youth, youth even have things that they can share with them to help them now. Wow. So we're looking forward to, to kind of getting that off of the ground in the next few weeks. We also have Out the Hood during this uh, spring break that our youth is on. They've been going bowling. They've been going skating. You would not imagine how many of our youth do not leave their area. Mm-hmm. Don't mm-hmm. leave their area. And it's so, you know, it, it's so comfortable because everything that you really need is there. Yep. You know, but you you are not exposed to the various cultures that's out there, you know. And without the hood, we even expa- exposed them to various careers. You know, we took them to Wyclef Jean's studio. 
You know, they got in the booth as well as had an opportunity to talk to the engineer, to talk to all of those that make this album and this, you hear me, album, like I'm old, right? To make this CD. Do they do CDs? Whatever. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) To make this music what it is, you know, that our kids don't even know anything about. You know, we took them to Scadden Arts where they met all types of lawyers. You wow. know, lawyers like sports management, like who's your favorite player? Okay, I represent so and so. I get ten percent of the contract that I get signed from, and they're like, "Whoa, he on a hundred million dollar contract!" All right, you know. Mm. So, just teaching our our children to embrace who they are and what they do, you know, and teaching the parents also. They may not be the one in the forefront, but the second is still getting just as paid as the one in the forefront is, you know, and just all of the careers that's out there. So myself and I, I can't, I would be remiss if I did not talk about my awesome son, Justin, you know, mm. that is doing this work with me, that has his ear to the ground, the youth, he, he's like the pod piper of East Harlem. He go <laughs> over into NYCHA, into Jefferson projects where I raised them and He'll do some type of whistle or one kid to see him and they just come running from everywhere. And, you know, we're just a phenomenal, if I may say so myself, a phenomenal mom-son team, you know, all in memory of my, my child, Andrell, so... Wow, that that does sound phenomenal. We're gonna we're gonna give a, a hand clap on that on that one. Cause that that's beautiful right there. That is very beautiful. Now I I would I would imagine with all of the work that you just laid out there, you, you must have a team of like 10, 20, 30, 50 I wish. people, right? No? No? How how does how does how do you make this work? I have a team of one, two, three, four. I would say five or six. And like my youth team is in the office Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, um, every other Friday. Mm-hmm. My survival liaison is Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Like everybody has mixed schedules just to make sure we're always covered. But we don't have the financial or fiscal support mm. in order to have all full-time staff. Wow. Yeah, we just don't have it as of yet. We are making it do what it do. Right. You know, um, but we're looking forward to it, to being able to build our capacity because the work is great, you know. And, right. and with my heart, of course, we have no boundaries, you know. Right. So if we are called by someone in the Bronx that needs support, we're there, you know. If we're called- what, what, what is that support? Let's say someone in the Bronx calls, they need support. What does that support look like? So it depends on what level they're coming in on. So if it is a family who just um, experienced the transition, then we will get on it and see where they are as far as did they start making final arrangements? Um, did they apply mm. for um, victims' compensation? Um, do they need a transfer from where they are to maybe somewhere else? Do they need to stay in a hotel or Airbnb for a few days? You know, a lot of our families are stepping over the blood of their loved ones mm. after they're murdered because our babies get like they don't travel outside of their comfort zone, so they're right. getting murdered in their comfort zone. You know, so these parents are coming home from precincts and from different places having to step over the blood of their babies. So I just want to point out, just so people, I want to make sure people get what you're saying. Mm -hmm. People live where, people get comfortable where they live. So they're in a comfort zone. Right. And what you're saying is the blood is still on the street. For example, in one of the places I used to live when I... There was a person um, who who died, who expired, who passed away from a gunshot wound. They had got gotten shot on the avenue and walked, you know, stumbled down through on the side street until they literally died right on the doorstep of where I was living. And so when I woke up, uh, it because it was a late night shooting. When I woke up that that morning, I heard. I mean, I heard the police were outside, and 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 I heard like this water. Because I water rushing, that was the first time that I I found out that the Department of Sanitation is supposed to literally come That's and right. clean up people's bodies and blood in right. the aftermath of a shooting. But here's the thing about blood: it stains. Mm-hmm. 
I think for about as long as I lived in that apartment, every time I would leave my house and walk in that same direction, I would see the blood stains on the ground. I would it was a it was a daily reminder that someone had died on literally on the stairs right outside my window of where I live. And that wasn't even a relative of mine. Mm -hmm. So I want to put back what you're saying in terms of this is where people are living. Young people growing up into adolescence and then into adulthood, right? Because we're talking intergenerationally. This is their comfort zone. This is where they live. Now their family member has transitioned and the blood of their family member is literally standing the ground. So now they are no longer comfortable in their comfort zone. That's right. So now they are living in daily discomfort, mm-hmm. not just in a sense of a transition from a loved one, because we we hearing a lot about loved ones transitioning due to gun violence, which which we are all fighting to address. But I also want I want to make sure that people get what what you are giving in terms of the reality of people who are living in continual and daily discomfort mm. from the reminder of seeing the literal life fluid of their family member on the ground or on the wall or on the, in, in the elevator, wherever it is, where they live every day. So you can go ahead and continue. I just want to make sure that people were, I want people to understand what you're saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's, it's, I think discomfort is putting it lightly. It's traumatizing. Mm. Traumatizing, yes. You know, it is traumatizing to see you, you're still traumatized by it years later, you know, even yeah. as you talk about it. Can yeah. you imagine family members that have to yeah. see the last pieces of their loved one? You probably, it sounds like you was lucky that sanitation got there in good enough time because I have parents that actually had to clean the blood themselves mm. because sanitation did not get there, you know, in good enough time. And so that's what our continuum of support looks like for them. You know, immediate support is when we make sure or we, you know, make sure that they have completed their victim's compensation. They need trans- transfers. They need transportation. The different things, the little things like that, that they need in the moment, right after their loved one has transitioned. And then we would go to the next level of tra- of uh, support, which is a year or so down the line, you know, because the first is always the worst. The first mm. holidays, you know, mm. your first Christmas getting up without your child is unimaginable. You know, Thanksgiving, especially if your child was a foodie, if your child liked to cook, you know, we actually have chefs that um, lend their craft and their talent to us and cook. We supply the food, they cook the meals for these families, which is their first year. And so those are the things we do. The first birthday, the first transition day, you know, if they want to hold a candlelight vigil, if they want to do a balloon release, you know, and also getting them acclimated into peer support sessions. So the first year we have it where they should be a part of both the Brooklyn and the Harlem sessions because they need that support. And sometimes when the, when they're in that area, it's not always families who um, whose loved one has transitioned in that year. It may be their first time being a part of the support session, mm. you know, and so they may need that extra support as well. And then as we further the continuum of support, it goes into creating legacies for our loved ones, whether you want to create an organization, whether you want to start doing something annual in memory of them, all of those different things that just helps you further your healing and and just support you on your journey moving forward. Thank you for elucidating that and really giving us the detail. One of the reasons for the New Hood Peace Partners for this podcast is for people to understand and have a better picture and idea of the work that goes on in community-based violence prevention for the black and brown folks who are on the ground, folks like yourself, who are doing incredibly stressful, incredibly uh, just emotional, uh, emotional, emotionally difficult labor, um, uh, incredibly difficult work with the bare minimum of resources. And so that's why I wanted you to kind of take us through 
what it actually looks like for your work because there there are people who may are just starting to hear about this thing called CVI or community violence intervention or they're starting to hear about you know some of the work that you or other folks are doing but they may not but they may not they may think they get it but they're not but they don't really they like they they outside but they're not that outside right they're not really understanding or seeing or experiencing yeah. what it is to do to do the work on a on a on a regular and daily basis and so I want people who hear this to hear the work that you are doing with you said five five to six people one of whom is is your son right right right? you know what I mean you know what I mean you know and 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 making it and and making it work in in doing incredible and incredible service to to the community so I I want to ask you then because because this is like superhero type stuff you know when we we have superheroes on this show this this is really a superhero show and every superhero has has an origin story so I, I I'd like to know how did you not even just in terms of you know, starting not another child in and of itself, but who are you as, as a person? Um, because not because different people may experience tragedy, whether it's losing a, a loved one or having some some something else happen tragic in their lives. But only some people are turn that tragedy into purpose, and and which is not a knock. It's just some, you know, just people handle things in different ways in life. How how are you? Who is Arisa Napper Williams? This person who who has turned, uh, taken this situation that's happened to her and and turned it into this amazing purpose. I, I, what's your origin story? What's my origin stories? Oh, <laughs> we're in the multiverse. Okay, the multiverse. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I I don't even know. I think it was a few things that brought me to this point. Like, I, I think with most black women, mm. yo, we are the dopest under the sun. Like, hello. Like, no, for real. Like, we are so dope. So, it, when I, you, you know, you just live life. Like, when I was a, when I was 18 years old, my last year at fashion high school and had a son, you know, and had to get mm. through that and then having another son. At 20, I never saw it as, yo, you resilient, you to I never saw it as that. I just was doing what I do, you know, what mm. I was taught to do from my mother, mm. you know, and I think that has always been there. But one thing, and I... I it's, it's so many things, but when I left Woodhull Hospital, and if anybody knows, are you familiar with Woodhull Hospital? Not, I mean, I, I know of it, but I'm not intimately familiar with so it. So they have a ramp that is so long that goes up and around into the emergency room, keeps going down. Like the night of August 7th, when I got there, this hospital was full. Like people that I knew, I'm looking like, what you doing here? Like, hey, like I haven't seen you since high school. Like, you know, my son wasn't dead at the time. You know, they were waiting for me to get there so that I could talk to the soul. You know, everything happened. But I came back out and nothing for nothing. My other son, Justin, they must have told him that. Andrell, who I affectionately call Ronnie, was shot in the back of his head. Mm. He did not tell me that. And so Justin took the six train from Harlem all the way down to the J train. It was no rush for him because he, I guess he wanted to sit in the fact that my brother might be or is gone. And so right outside of Wood Hospital, they have the train station. Long train. When I tell you, it's so long, the steps, and it's two, I believe it's two layers of steps. So it comes to one landing, then it comes to another. Justin is coming down the stairs. And when I saw Justin coming down the stairs, and I've never really seen my son separate. Mm. It was every picture that we have is the three of us or the two of them. Mm -hmm. 
And I saw my son by himself and realized I would never see them together again. And I dropped to my knees. I was screaming and crying. Justin came down those stairs and walked over to me and said, Ma, get up. Ronnie would not want you acting like that. Mm. And when I tell you, I don't know where the strength came from, but I stood up and I walked to the car. It was like, It was like my son was speaking to me. Mm. Like, Ma, no, this isn't going to take you down. Nothing else is taking you down. You know what I'm saying? With Mm. everything that has happened in your life. I always think of the, remember the the book Black Girls Lost? Black Girl Lost? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I always think of redoing that as Black Girl Lost, Woman Found. Mm. Because I was always that Black Girl Lost. Looking, looking, searching, searching. And through this, I found my identity of who I am, my purpose in life and all of that. But just hearing those words, Ma, get up. Ron would not want you acting like that. Now I'd be thinking, I'd be like, I should have said, excuse me? Like, (laughs) but you know, just those words alone gave me the strength to then get up. You know, and and I think it's been a no-brainer since then. Of course, I've gone through my issues, you know, with my grief. Because later for gun violence and just your grief of missing your child. Mm. You know, that that that's so between that and having the right support, you know, and that's why I try to be there with for so many mothers and families. Because every, you know, my support is dope. My support system, I didn't even go home for three weeks. You know, I, mm. I didn't go to a funeral home. I didn't have to worry about filling out victims' competence. Everything was paid for. Like, everybody does not have the support that I had. And with that type of support, I was just able to grieve. Mm. I was just able to ask God, all right, all right, like, what did I do? You know, like, why is this happening to me? You know, and to be able to get an answer, you know, and, and so everybody does not have that support. And so I try to give people the support that they need out the gate, you know, because I think how you enter it is how you stay in it. You mm. know, some, some parents that I meet that it's been 10, 15 years down the line, it takes a lot to break off, uh, to break those, break down that trauma because you have layers of trauma already. Mine being a single parent, um, identity crisis, poverty, all of that. You know, all of those layers. And then comes your child being killed. You know, that's on top of that. So imagine those families and those parents that don't have anybody to step right in right there. So on top of their child being killed, then they have um, relationship issues on top of that. Because believe me, most of my most of my mothers that are, were married are no longer married because mm. it's just that great the trauma and and some people just can't understand it. You know, it goes into the you're not over this yet. You know, and I always say it's something that you don't get over, you get through. But everybody mm. doesn't understand that. You know, so I think in my faith, forget about it. Forget about like. Forget about it. Like that is the foundation. And like when people try to find faith after, they have to find a space for it. But when you have that prior to, you have that as your foundation. You know, and it's crazy because my 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 work outside of NAC has been teaching people to cope in a dark and gloomy situation such as death and grief and how you prepare for it before you're in it. Mm. You can't prepare for death after. So how do you prepare for death during life? And we as a people don't talk about that. That's why people die and you don't know if they had life insurance. 
You don't know if they want they fa- they fa- favorite pocketbook to go to a grand niece down in North Carolina. You know, you have so many people that's grieving heavily because they did not live life with no regrets. Mm. You know, and that's like, I ain't talked to my nephew in months. Let me just reach out to him. You know, later for the fact that he may never text me back, I'm texting him because I'm going to live, he's not going to die today or tomorrow. And I say, oh, I ain't speak to him. I feel so, oh, I ain't speak to him. You know, your, your grief is always balanced to your relationship. So, you know, shameless plug, my book, Good Grief, is coming out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm done. I'm done. You had, you know what I'm saying? My eyes are watering. I'm sitting here trying to, like, keep it together. I'm thinking about my whole life and existence. And you should be. Like, you should be. When the when the when the book coming out? You got it. You got to release date. They laying it out now. They laying it out. Oh, they laying man. it out. It's twelve principles or twelve nuggets to grieving in the twenty first century. Mm. And so, yeah, it should be out the top of May. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's so much to unpack, as you would say. Yeah. <laughs> that's it's that's so that academic. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Wow. You just really like you, my whole, you just, man, I'm, I'm just like done. I'm like, that's it. It's finished. Like you just, you just, I don't even know what to do with like, all of it that, is but it is, it is, man, listen, so good grief. You got to make sure yes. when that, when that come out, you, you, uh, you can, you can get a, pick up a copy of it. If, and I'll make sure in the show notes, um, there'll be a link to not another child's website. Yeah, yeah. And then maybe later on when the book comes out, maybe I can go back and add yeah, the link to, to people who awesome. want to buy the book. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things I, I also wanted to ask you about, I, I need to collect Stop myself again. <laughs> no, nah, I'm just like, man, woo, oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> so, one of the things I wanted to be able to tackle in 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 doing this show is the the different spaces and lanes that people play when it comes to community-based violence prevention. You know, my at first I was like, oh, I'm just gonna interview people who are doing, you know, street outreach and violence interruption work. And I said, well, that that might not be that interesting after like the <laughs> second or third episode. And there's a broader field out here now than there was, say, five or ten years ago. Uh, maybe even two years ago. And so it's like, okay, well, let's let's get, you know, a, a broader picture. And you and I were talking recently mm-hmm. about the role of survivors. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to ask you what that means in a minute because you put it so poignantly. And, I, and so I want to give you the space to do that. But I just want to let folks know if, if, if you're sitting there washing your dishes, you're doing something else right now, First of all, I don't know how you could have listened to the last five minutes and not just be on the edge of your seat. But if you if you haven't been paying attention now, I think is a good time to lean in because what we were talking about last week, you really shifted my thinking about what it means to do community based violence prevention, public safety, whatever CVI work, whatever whatever the, the, the terminology is. Because when I came into it, it was with, you know, with Street Corner Resources, and we were primarily focusing on, okay, how do we, you know, work with folks to, to you know, stop someone from shooting or, or, or to work with young people or to get the community together for peace. But then you brought in this whole survivor aspect of things. Let me, let me, so let me, let me ask you this and then we'll just, and then we can let the conversation flow. But when you were talking about survivors, I had always assumed that you meant that someone who had survived being shot. And then you clarified to me that there's actually uh, a deeper meaning to what you're, what, what you're talking about. So, so when you say survivors, Tell us what, what you mean and, and why. So my lens of survivors are those on the other side of the gun, are those that are left here to deal with, to live with, to journey on without their loved one that has transitioned, mm-hmm. their loved one that has become a victim of gun violence. 
when I first started this work, we were victims, victims, victims. And I just think that's such a deficit of a lens, you know, mm-hmm. because if mm-hmm. you're like, I see my son as the victim because he mm. succumbed to his injuries. But during the pandemic, I had a lot of time to think. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think that that survivors and shifting the narrative of us being victims to survivors was just so prevalent for me. And, you know, God really gave it to me then that I am going to help you transition victims to survivors to influencers. Mm. Say that again, please. Transitioning victims to survivors to influencers. Mm. So I think that when my son was murdered, when our children are murdered, we are victims. It is this much, this little that we don't succumb to the in, to the to the um, injury with them. You know, and mm. some do succumb to the injury with them and may stay in that victim mentality. But then there's another group that transitions from being a victim and starts to build themselves after, starts to learn how to survive starts to learn how to live, starts to learn how to do the work, starts to learn how, whatever, but they become survivors. And then it is another level of survivors that move forward and become influencers. And when I say influencers, I don't mean those on social media with a million followers and just influencing those that may be on that other side of the gun, willing to shoot, Influencing legislation, Mm. influencing mothers to become or families to become better in their healing process, just influencers, period. And so, you know, that's my, that's my lens on what survivors are, you know? Yeah, that, that's it. Wow. That is true leadership. I've heard that. I think I saw it on LinkedIn or read in some book or something that, uh, that leaders create other leaders. Mm -hmm. And we were just talking about in the conversation how some people are able to take horrific things that happen in them in life and turn it into some kind of purpose. And we were just talking about, hey, how were you able to do that? And what I hear you saying is when you're saying you want to take folks from from victims to survivors to influencers to, to, to influence what is going on in the world in various capacities to me what i'm hearing is you are are are, you are helping to create other superheroes Mm -hmm. you are helping and supporting people and taking their tragedy and turning it into into purpose taking going from tragedy to to triumph Mm -hmm. and i think that that is just so powerful in in what you are doing as victims to survivors to influencers and when we were talking before, you know, one of the things that that really that really struck me when you were when you were first talking to me about what you mean by survivors and and how they have um, people who have uh, who are surviving the transition of their of their family mm-hmm. member, even the the language that you use, you not you don't you do talk about death and the, you talk about transition, yeah. right? Yeah. And what struck me was that in this community-based violence prevention, CVI, whatever, what have you, field, that there is so many models, so so many national gun violence prevention models focus on stopping the bullet, but not many focus on what happens after the bullet is already released, Bingo. right? Because we, we, we know that people are going to shoot, right? Mm-hmm. We live in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. We have more guns than any place, right, in the universe, right, of the known universe. So people are going to get shot, right? This is going, this is, this is, it is going to happen Mm -hmm. in the United States of America. And we can come up with all sorts of innovative ways to have that not happen, right? And that's what all the debates in about, and we're happy that funding is there for that now. But what happens when that bullet is released and it hits someone? How do you deal with, with the pain and the trauma. And then when we look at, you know, people want to take a, a public health approach to to dealing with gun violence, and you look at the social ecological model and you and you look at the ramifications, there is so much untreated pain yes. and trauma yes. that people are just 
living with. And I never really thought about it until you really you put it to me last week. And then after after our conversation, I was at a shooting response uh, on 125th Street and Lenox Avenue because there was someone who was shot. Mm-hmm. In case that's in the news, mm-hmm. you know, people mm-hmm. can, can Google that. And when we went, I went to the shooting response. Um, the folks there were talking about how just that just that same afternoon, while people were preparing for the shooting response, someone else was shot, and someone else was stabbed, and and folks were and so they when they closed the shooting response, folks went over to Harlem Hospital. Wow. And what I was thinking about when in that moment was for the for the folks who have transitioned, as you said. What's going to happen to the family mm-hmm. members? Mm-hmm. Who is going? You know, what is going to be the aftermath of that? Can you talk a little bit about? And I hope I didn't take too much of your of your thunder there, mm-hmm. but you, you just had. You know, I, I am still. I'm. I'm learning. I, I, I've learned so much from you, and I'm. And I'm still. Listen, just because you have a PhD, don't mean you know everything. And 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 and, and, and you know what I mean. Sorry. And and so I am. I am a, a student, and and I am learning that from all the study that I've done and the work that I've done and I and I and it hadn't gotten to me what the way you put it in terms of the healing work that you mentioned earlier right you you started off saying how do we stop the bullet how do we do anti-gun violence I want to tell young people not to shoot right. and now you are are forwarding your mission toward peace and healing how do you see yourself how do you see the work of not another child within this growing field of uh, community violence intervention, community-based public safety, or whatever we want to call it, how do you see your work and in, in your role within this broader field? Yeah, that, and, and it would have to be seen within the broader field because we are, I don't want to step on any toes, but we're really not a part of the field right now. Oh. We really, really aren't. Um, the work that we do, it, most of the parents and family members that I see working in the field is working in other capacities. They're mm. not leading from the lens of a survivor. Yes, they have this role, and then it's always, it, it's so-and-so is an outreach worker, and oh yeah, they lost a family member as well, or they lost their child as well. It's not like that's the first, you know, the first role that they play. And it's because none of the money is really going there. Mm. You know, none of the investment is really going to survivor-led organizations. And once again, that survivors that is dealing with the transition of their loved one. Not survivors that have gone to jail and did time and came home. Not survivors that were shot. And it's like, yeah, I was shot, you know, and I mean, I, granted, I'm not knocking any of that. I'm just saying the survivors that are really, really living with this on a daily basis without their loved one, the investment is not going there. And thus, I'm trying to create our own path for it. Mm. We have to have a path for it. None of our work is evidence-based, but we know it works. Mm. We know it works. We can mm-hmm. have every parent that we've spoken to that has been a part of a session that has interacted to come to the front and say, yes, if it had not been for this, you know, I, I, I would be going crazy right now. So how do we become a part of that? I don't think we become a part of it. I think we create our own lane that is parallel to it. You know, because mm. both of the, the, the lane of the CVIPI is from being shot or being the shooter. Mm-hmm. You know, that's mm-hmm. from that. None of that is from having the loved one that was shot. You know, and so I don't think that it really plays a place in that. I think that as time goes, we continue to prick at it, continue to to build new models. None of those models are what we have to do with a violence interrupter and an outreach worker. <laughs> Nothing whatsoever. And you know, and you know, I've been trying to, I've been working on creating something. And yes, I have right. outreach mm-hmm. workers, 
but the outreach workers I have is to identify or to work closely with the current parents and then to reach back to other parents. Right. Like we are the parents from 2006 and before. We're up, we had 200 and something, almost 300 murders last year in New York. I have met 10 of them. We're all mm. of those parents. We're all of those families. Mm. Why is there not a network just for the family, the same way they push them to save Verizon and to other organizations to complete different, um, to complete, what is it? The crime victims compensation. Mm-hmm, they need mm-hmm. to be able to send them to somebody so that they can start getting services. You know, so that it's not all about just the funding and the opportunities that come with that and making sure right. we meet our numbers. Mm, hello. You know, don't just think about your numbers. Think about it moving forward. Mm. You know, because if you don't think about it now, I mean, yeah, they'll keep your job because if you don't think about them now, you will be working with them later. You know, mm. you'll be working with that, that brother that has a vengeance now because his brother was murdered and now he's at the age of 12 and now he's 18, you, you know, and now he's looking right. for the dudes that killed him. Like that, that retaliation, you know, I always talk about that because my son was killed in the middle of a retaliation, mm-hmm. you know, so mm-hmm. I don't like the CVIPI, I'm, I'm like, you know, that's cool. You know, I was trying to find a way for us to be in that. Yeah. For us to, yeah. you know, so we can apply for funding. We're just not a part of that. We're not a part mm. of that. You know, the closest way that we're a part is New York's crisis management system, where we offer therapeutic support. That's not even enough for a salary. <laughs> you know, that's been $35,000 since that started. You know, mm. so. Ten, that was like. 10 years ago, the crisis Absolutely. system was created. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and not another child. And, and um, Jackie Rowe Adams was the first two to have the therapeutic support, you know, for survival-led organizations that was funded. I think a lot of people see survivors still as victims, like we don't have anything to offer. Mm. Yeah. And it's more from a sympathetic approach than a, yo, they have part of the answer too. Because it's not just one answer. If it was, then it wouldn't be going up. You know, even when you talked about you first met me when I was doing the NYPD thing, I'm called the voice of pain when it comes to that. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. and as we go Mm -hmm. around the city, I've had young men come to me. I needed an auntie like you when I was growing up to just tell me to stop my crap like you do. Because that's what, you know, you can come to them from a different lens. You know, sometimes right. they don't want to hear the old timers like, yeah, I did 25 years. And they don't care about that. they like, my mother could be sitting there, my auntie, my grandmother. Sometimes you right. got to hit them with that reality. Like, right. no, dude, like, I know what you're going through. I raised two of you. Mm. I know you're born with two strikes, one black and one male. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we fit in that CVIPI by any means. You know what what you're saying makes me think of because you know I I think about public policy and 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 one of my hopes is that people who are staffers for uh, elected officials or, or folks who are in policy find a way to 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 listen to the to these shows. One of the things that I'm thinking about is the question of what do we value. So in my dissertation research, and thank you for for being one of my uh, one of my uh, expert stakeholders for my my dissertation. In my dissertation research, one of the things that I wrote about is that public policy is values oriented. Public policy is values driven. And one of the things that I'm thinking about as I'm listening to you is how much, if not most, if maybe not all, but a large portion of the funding that is now becoming available for community-based violence prevention work is it comes from a lens of crime prevention or or law enforcement so embedded in the the unst- the embedded goal right the underlying goal is really about reducing the numbers right reducing the numbers of shootings reducing the numbers of homicides reducing the numbers of whatever whatever it, it may be which is laudable right which of course we all want I'm, i mean you know please keep the money going right we we want that but that is a bit different 
then coming from a healing perspective, right? How do we have, as as Anthony Smith would say, um, safe, healthy, and hopeful neighborhoods? How do we have healing in our communities? How do we have healing for survivors whose loved ones uh, who who have have transitioned? How do we address the social um, challenges that we face from from a from a healing perspective, as opposed to okay, how do I stop these shootings? Um, and so, even embedded in the 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 funding. Because even the initial funding for you know cure violence, uh, when you know because cure violence is the is the is the, the the brand model that that a lot of folks you know are familiar with, that came through the Department of Justice. You know that that was that that came through law enforcement funding as opposed to a community healing perspective. And so for me, it raises the question of what do we value? Um, what do we value not only when it comes to the healing of individuals or, or, or addressing shootings and gun violence and homicide. But what do we value in terms of black and brown people? What do we value from a policy perspective? Are we worth, are we worth the investment? And so these are all the things that are coming up for me just as I'm listening to you. And I, I think is I think is so crazy because being that healing is something that you cannot physically see, mm. you may think that we're okay because this mother is up and going and doing and rallying it. You you, you know what I mean? Like we yes, can't yes. physically see, so why don't we need to invest in that? They're fine. You know, they are citizens of society, but it's different in being productive citizens of society and just being citizens. Mm, mm -hmm. And so just that whole healing aspect, because we can put on a good front and, and come and close the door and scream our brains out, you know? Right. Um, the other thing is without addressing that healing, the violence comes up in so many different capacities. And that's why, you know, I'm even starting to stretch from just gun violence to violence. You know? Right. Um, I'll never forget, I think it was Harlem Mother Saves. They had a a health discussion at Harlem Hospital that they invited me to sit on a panel. And that year, um, I think that was the year when they had put in where when you're caught with a gun, you get a, a year for every bullet and this, that, and the other. And although gun violence went down that year, violence by means of other ways went up. Mm, so they had talk about it. getting hit on their head with bats, stabbings, like all types of things going up because it the healing is just not addressed. Right. You know, the, right. the mental and, and we keep saying mental health, but you and that scares people away also. You know, when right. we start talking about my mental and that listen, just just be walk on eggshells with it. You know, it just has to be healing that takes place and unconventional healing. Mm -hmm. We're not expecting our young men to come and sit at a table and start crying. And, nah, you know, one of the ways with our tournament that we have implemented unconventional healing is to have those that's playing in the tournament to bring pictures of those they've lost to gun violence. Mm. We'll hang those pictures up around the courts. And we'll say, yeah, y'all playing in memory of them. You gonna win this championship for them, right? I, I, I don't know how much that means to them, but you will be <laughs> home MVP, whatever like that, in memory of them. Mm. You know, go back mm -hmm. to your home with the trophy. Yeah, yeah. You know, he still lives. However, you want to see it. Right. You know, but right. in a, a more positive way than taking a life in memory of him. You know, get it mm. in memory of him. I just think that that. Because healing is invisible, you know, that it's not deemed as necessary as much. You know, you can account for all of the individuals that's pulling the trigger. You can't account for all of the individuals that's being healed through services. Right. You know, right. Or those that need healing, although the, the although the gun is being taken from them. Right. We're going to be closing soon. I'm, I'm realizing this is a, a little bit longer of a conversation than we normally do, but but there's so much here. Because now I'm even thinking of, because, you know, I'm a research brain, well, at least I, I hope I have a research brain. I spent <laughs> six years getting a PhD. 
but thinking of there is a cost when people are unhealed, right? So like, I know, so so part, Pat Sharkey, and I think it was Ingrid Ellen, I think um, at NYU years ago had done some some research on how even hearing gunshots yes. has yes. an impact on children's academic achievement yes. like in elementary schools, even just hearing gunshots. Wow. Uh, you know, there's, there's, you know, how, you know, how many times I, I look at the New York Times and they say, oh, if you don't get enough sleep, it's, you know, it impacts your ability to be productive yes. at work. Uh, lost wages yes. in the economy from bada ba. So if we look at folks who have had a, a family member transition, mm. I wonder what are the, and, and I'm, somebody must have, have looked at this. I'm shout out to Tanya Sharp um, at the crib. I'm trying to holler at yes. her. But, you know, what are the, the lost wages, um, the lost tax revenue, um, the, the productivity from, from folks who, who are still going through, as you, as you said, from having a family member transition. And, and if we value that, right. And if there's, a, if it, cause you know, we live in a capitalist society. So if there's a, a dollar amount that can be applied to that. And then we can say, okay, so now this is how much is worth to you. Because that's how the CVIPI money came, right? They said each death is costing right. you X amount that's of dollars, right? right? And now people are like, oh, well, shoot, I could either spend $250 billion on homicides or I can give $250 million for CVI mm-hmm. and everyone mm-hmm. thinks, you know, great stuff, Absolutely. right? So I'm wondering, that's some, that might be something to to take a look at. So, so as, as we wrap up though, what, would you want policymakers to know? You know, I think it's dual responsibility when it comes to this. I know a lot of people fight for for gun restrictions, things that I'm one of those that feels like a gun did not kill my child. Accessibility mm. killed my child. Somebody's mental health killed my child. You know, but a gun did not act on its own. I've always dreamed of Andrell's Accountability Act. You know, Mm -hmm. we have all of these different policies and all of these different laws and things like that when it comes to obtaining guns. But one thing we don't have is accountability for where your gun ends up at. Mm. So you cannot check off a box for integrity. While you may complete an application for a gun saying, no, I have, don't have any felons. I don't have this. I don't have that. But we never know if you have or do not have the integrity to sell your guns in the black market. Mm-hmm. We don't know if you have the integrity to report your gun lost or stolen when you really sold it to someone. And mm-hmm. I think if we made gun owners more accountable of where their guns end up at, and how it is used and get a little bit more restriction on that, that might mm-hmm. help. Or that would be another piece to the puzzle. You know, we're very careless with even the back tra- checking of where these guns are coming from. Mm-hmm. You know, a, I don't know where the gun came from that killed my son. I know it didn't come from somewhere in New York. You know, it may right. have come from somebody down in South Carolina. That's, that's, you know, that's what they do for their extra income or whatever. But I think right. that the lawmakers should know or, or just make people more accountable for where their guns end up at and also invest more into survivor-led organizations and the work oh. that we are doing from the other lens of healing and wholeness. Wow. Wow. That's deep. It makes me think of Spider-Man, thinking of superheroes, you know. <laughs> Uh, Uncle Ben said, you know, you know, the famous line, right? With great power, there must also come great responsibility. And so if folks think, if folks have the perspective of it is their, their rights, their freedom to own a gun. Okay. But then there also must be responsibility and where responsibility, there must be accountability, right? Um, For, for what happens, for what happens with that. So we're wrapping up here. Is there anything that you want to give a shout out about? I know you have the, the book coming out, Good Grief. Anything else that you, you want to promote? Any events or, or anything that, that you want to give a shout out to at yeah, this point? Yeah, I mean, we will be doing our regular, you know, our regular events this summer. One thing that um, we're going to be implementing that's new is a Survivor Speak series. 
where we'll be mm. doing panels of panel discussions around the city just so that people can hear directly from survivors, not the organizations that work with them not the, you know, the agencies that work with them. I go to so many panels and events and, you know, while they feel like, see, we're having survivors come, but we're the last panel most of the time. You know, Mm. when everybody else is gone, then you have survivors and you have youth, you know, and I don't think it's fair. I think it, it kind of diminishes our voice a little. And for some survivors, you know, it just makes them feel like their their story doesn't matter. And so this is the stage in the leadership capacity of just building survivors to tell their stories, how important it is, and that helps them in their healing journey as well. And so we'll be doing some Survivor Speak series across, um, across the city. You know, we'll be doing our regular Times Square event um, during Gun Violence Awareness Month. Um, I think you came last year, didn't you, Talib? Were you? Yeah. Of course. You know, I'll be, I'll be, I'll, I'll be outside, outside, outside. I'll be there. I'll be, I'll be quiet. I'll be in the corner. I don't That's want, you know right. what I mean? But, but, but I'll be there. Be helping us yeah. set up. You know, we, we need all of that, yes. yeah, which is a good look. And just some other things. I really want to do a Survivors of Violence conference. Mm. And that, that has been something that's been swimming in my head. You know, I'm going to start planning for that. I'll probably have to do it next year. Um, But as it goes, every year I'm implementing something else, you know. But if you have any survivors that need support, please go to notanotherchild.org. You can can submit your email address, and I I believe it also asks what areas do you need support in. We can have our survivor liaison to contact you. It's not just about us. It is about saving families. You know, and so we definitely look forward to to just meeting other families and expanding our services. Wow. 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 Thank you so much for for just giving us so just so much. Like I'm just like full (laughs) with with so many thoughts and ideas and you've just just done so much. People can check out notanotherchild.org. We have the link in the show notes. So whether you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever platform or outlet you happen to come about you can to go ahead and go on the show notes and click on not another child's website feel free if you are so moved to support uh the work of not another child because as you as you heard the survivor-led work is super important and it's not necessarily on the forefront of all the millions of dollars that you're hearing about and and we definitely want to make sure that all the survivors know that that you matter uh, that your stories matter um, that your perspective matters, and that you are all important components of community healing, right? We're, we we got to get beyond just the gun and the bullet, but go beyond and look at the healing holistically that our communities need, um, not just from gun violence, but from, from so many uh, social challenges and issues. And uh, survivors are an incredible, uh, incredibly important part of that. So, Thank you so much, Arisa, for joining us. Um, My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you to my sister, Arisa, for a wonderful, wonderful time. And thank you for joining us on another episode of the New Hood Peace Partners. Remember to share the podcast with whomever you think may be interested and we'll continue building this community. We'll catch you all back here in two weeks. In the meantime, in between time, check us out at thenewhood.org. That's T-H-E-N-E-W-H-O-O-D dot O-R-G, thenewhood.org. Appreciate you. Peace.